Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 268 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome! In this episode, I talk to Kevin Randino of Spirit Stone Studio about their puzzle platformer, Cloak and Dasher. Chris, from the past, if you'd be so kind. Kevin! Hello. Who are you, and what do you do? Uh, My name is Kevin Randino. I am a game developer part-time. And I make fun. He does, everyone. That's official. I've actually got a you know, seal of approval. Uh, it's actually a picture of a seal with <laughs> smiling. But it's still a seal. Uh, and it, Yes. Um, Kevin from um, Spirit Stone Studio. Is that right? No, that is correct. I'm the founder. Yes. And uh, you've made an awesome game called Cloak and Dasher, which I played at PAX East a couple of weeks ago. At the time, well, not at the time of recording, it's about a week ago at the time of recording, but by the time you hear this, it will be a couple of weeks. Sorry. Time, all very confusing. Anyway, so you answered the first question pretty well. Well done, Kevin. You've identified who you are and what you do. <laughs> Thank- thankfully, I knew that much. So here's the second question, and it do get harder as you go on, so <laughs> brace yourself. Um, how did you make your start making video games? All right, that's one of the longer answers. Uh, so basically, I've always had some kind of fascination with video games since I first played Super Mario uh, World, actually. That was in my uncle's uh, – so my grandparents had an SNES that was owned by my uncle, and he showed my brother and I Super Mario World. And I, for one, was terrible at it because I was five, and for two, was enthralled by it because it was the first time I was able to make something on – a TV happen. <laughs> I didn't, my little five-year-old brain just blew my mind. Um, what, what's funny about that though, is I only learned later in life that my uncle had a game genie attached to Super Mario World that was giving us invincibility all the time. So strangely enough, I thought I was so great at the game only to find out later in life that no, I wasn't great. I just wasn't able to die. <laughs> <laughs> And wow. uh, but it, amazingly, that does a lot for a a young kid. And because I feel like if I did play that game at its hardness that it was, I probably wouldn't enjoy games as much. But what that what came out of that was kind of a sense of a love of exploration of games and their mechanics, and uh, that kind of grew on me much more so when I think it was two years later, my parents bought us a Sega Genesis. And while I wasn't playing Mario, I certainly latched onto Sonic very quickly, and that kind of instilled in me a love of fast-paced games that really push you to think quickly and just uh, try to optimize yourself as best you can through these levels. I played. I can't count the number of times I've beaten that game. I know at one point I had Super or not Super Sonic the Hedgehog three and Knuckles, which is the one that has the save version of it, and they had a, I think, six or seven, maybe even eight save slots in that game. And I was convinced for some reason as a kid, because the internet didn't exist yet, that if I beat the game on every save slot, I'd get some kind of extra feature. And when that didn't work, I said, okay, well, there's a no save option. What if I do it on that one? I've always kind of looked at games as like, how can I get more fun out of it? Because by presenting these challenges to myself, I find that um, I, I find that these challenges have made me examine games in a deeper way. And then eventually, when I was 10, my father uh, got my brother and I PCs, and he was already a programmer. So he actually gave me a brief crash course on programming in the form of teaching me how to use batch files to uh, play certain games that I couldn't play on Windows. 
And from there, I just started getting kind of fascinated in the concept of being able to control computers. It's, it was like a meta video game in a way. I could actually like control my computer with these different commands. And eventually, I want to say I was 12 or 13, he got me a programming language called Dark Basic. That was a programming language that was actually designed around the concept of game creation. It actually had a very rudimentary 3D engine built into it, and all of the code was basic, or at least a variation of basic that could handle some more advanced tasks. So for a little 12 or 13-year-old Kevin, it was kind of a godsend. I, uh, I found myself mostly just looking at the samples of things that other people had made and making modifications to them to try to do different things. And I can safely say half the time I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, the other half of the time, I have no idea why it worked. And like a small point zero zero one percent of the time, I actually managed to create something. And that was a uh, little Pong game. And it wasn't Pong in the way you might even think. Like you didn't have another like robot player on the other side. It was literally just a wall. And so you, you had your paddle. Uh, and then the rest of it was just an enclosed box. And uh, aside from your side, which if the ball left your side, uh, just like Pong, it would uh, game over. But all it did was it sent a ball on a path that in retrospect was always predetermined because whenever you hit it with the ball, it would actually just go in one of uh, two different possible directions. It was coming from you, uh, coming for you, coming from the top going down, it would go to the right uh, and down. And if it was coming from the bottom and going up, it would go to the right and up when you hit it. It was just like a perfect 40 degree angle. Uh, but point being, I was bad at making games. I'm still pretty bad at making games, but I'm better. And I feel like bit by bit, we just kind of get better at our craft, you know, and game design has always fascinated me. I just try to get a little bit better bit by bit. And uh, yeah, from, from that Pong thing, I made a little breakout clone and then I made a little, uh, like really bad platformer and game maker. And then I've worked my way up through unity and here we are now. That's quite a storied, uh, um, story. Um, Shockingly unrehearsed. (laughs) No, no, it's, uh, it's probably might not have been asked that question. I don't know. Maybe you have, but, um, (laughs) Dark Basic, I did know about that when you mentioned that, but I was going to chip in for though. You're on a roll. You really were on a roll. I really was. Some Sometimes yeah. I just kind of keep going with things, but <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually shocked you're uh, aware of Dark Basic. I feel like I would, I, it's such a small audience that knows of that programming language. Yeah, it's because, um, you know, in the UK we had a lot of computers, so we had, um, like, I had an Atari ST as well, and there was various sort of high level gaming languages out there and I do I do know of Dark Basic it's been mentioned before by other guests on the show uh, and you saying you know making batch files on your PC to get games to run I, I remember doing that in the late 90s when I had a, a, a Windows 95 machine and mm-hmm. I was trying to get some old DOS games to run like Pro- Wing Commander was the one <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Privateer was a particular one that needed a lot of conventional memory to run, mm-hmm. and uh, I had to do lots of uh, lots of gymnastics to get it to work. Mm. But um, so I can definitely relate to that. Um, but no, it's it's uh, and then of course you went off to to do Unity, and then you know that's which is way way more advanced and can do some extraordinary things. I might have skipped a decade or so there. <laughs> you, you did. You did. That's fine. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with fast-forwarding a bit. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's it's a very interesting decade because the last, you know, 10, 15 years now, uh, the indie scene has become a thing now, thanks mm. to uh, the Xbox indie and also the uh, iOS, with, for good or ill, uh, creating uh, a scene where the barrier of entry dropped significantly thanks to the arrival of Unity and C Sharp, and then other like Unreal Engine as well. Can't forget that. And, and mm-hmm. Game Maker, lest we forget. Game Maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got to start somewhere, and for me, it was Game Maker. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I've said it before on the show, so I'll take a drink, everyone. But Hotline Miami was made. In- oh, yeah. Hotline Miami, Undertale. Like, I, I'm a very strong believer in the right tools and the right hands can make crazy awesome things. Like, there, there's a lot of bad games, a lot, a lot, oh, yes. a lot of bad games made in both Game Maker, Unity, Unreal Engine. But when masters of their craft get their hands on them, you can do some amazing things. Indeed. So, 
the ball's backed up to date, so we can then move on to the third question. I did say they get more more difficult. Here's I think I know what the answer to this is. Uh, usually I do, based on the game I've played, but uh, and also from what you've, how you've been chatting. But uh, let's see how this goes. As a creator of things, uh, what is your biggest influence? Oh boy, as a creator of things, what's my biggest influence? I that is a tough one, admittedly. I would say my biggest influence is just generally seeing that that's not really an influence it's more motivation i was gonna say seeing the joy on other people's faces when they like use what i've created but that that's more of a motivation the influence i'd say uh sonic the hedgehog for for my craft was a huge 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 inspiration for me uh the original 2d ones i refer to of course not that there wasn't some charm in the 3d ones but I feel like, you know, you see Cloak and Dash or you see the 2D, you can very clearly see the speed influence. Um, there is something about the momentum in those games that is massive. Um, and I've always also been a big fan of roguelikes because I was one of those people who actually as a child played rogue. So roguelikes, uh, roguelikes actually, I should say rather, uh, the biggest inspiration they've given me for the games that I create or anything like that is the concept of interactability. I find that not a lot of games offer the level of interactability that Rogue did or for that sake, uh, roguelikes such as NetHack, where in which, OK, so you just found this magical cape. That's great. It's a, it's a cloth cape and it gives you, let's say, invisibility. Actually, this was something that happened to me once and it was a huge inspiration. So I got that cape and I lo- like, you know, I was able to sneak by a bunch of enemies. And at one point I kind of got stuck in a doorway and I take out this wand that I had found and I said, ah, what the heck? I'll, I'll try it. Let's see what happens. It doesn't tell me what it does, of course. What it did was it actually fired a fireball, but I still had the cape equipped. And what ended up happening was the fireball, it just splashed a little bit of fire on me. And the cape, of course, caught fire. <laughs> and not only am I sitting here taking damage, but suddenly I'm surrounded by enemies and completely visible. And I'm just sitting here thinking, you don't get that kind of level of interaction in a lot of games. That's like the, the way that elements play off of each other to create something greater than the sum of their parts and to create an, an enriched experience is something that I don't think enough developers take into account. And I try to make that happen where I can in my games, is to have that extra little, you could call it polish, but I, I like to just think of it as extra little bit of uh, gameplay variance. Yeah, it's basically, oh, I've got this, I know this works. No, you don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. when, whenever you find another interaction, whenever a player finds another interaction between two different items, I yeah. feel like that's always going to be uh, both a aha and an oh crap moment in some cases. I think what I found with Cloak and Dash is, wait, I can do that? I didn't expect that. And it's lovely. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I could, oh, if I do that to this, I can keep, oh, right. I'll do that next time because I've just died again <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, and, and i think it's also a big win for the developers as well because for one you're getting more out of less right you're yeah. you're making interactions between things you already have created which in and of itself becomes another element for cheap and for two you can stretch that so far with uh different gameplay mechanics like uh one of the bigger things just taking cloak and dasher for example i'm probably jumping ahead on a question here but i'll try to keep it simple uh just when you dash into an enemy you get knocked up like uh and that was an idea the idea behind that was to be a momentum transfer thing so when you hit an enemy you didn't just suddenly stop moving you actually kept your momentum in some way in this case it just kind of converts it to vertical momentum but what i thought was okay so that happens against your will what can I do to punish somebody if they uh, dash into an enemy at the wrong time? And that's why I realized, well, if I put spikes uh, like above the ceiling or something like that in certain spots and they dash into an enemy at that spot, they'll die. So suddenly you have you know, a new level of interaction with this mechanic, and it, that was just free. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, well yeah, I didn't really go into that one of the questions. Close, but not quite. Not quite. <laughs> Dangly little carrot there. There you go. <laughs> so, but and your first response, you know, seeing joy in people's faces, empathy is perfectly fine. I mean, you know, you want to make the game that you'd want to play. That's mm-hmm. fine, and that's you know, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. So, as I said, these questions do get harder. This brace yourself for the next one. Oh boy! Yeah, this, this one is like four out of five too. Now I'm scared yeah, for five. <laughs> like, oh really? 
This one? Oh, okay. So, here we go. What developer do you most admire in the industry and why? You know, actually, I do have an answer for that one, and right. it'd be it'd be uh, John Carmack, actually. Right. Um, like that man. I so just a small bit of history on me. I am terrible at math. It is by far my weakest subject. And yet everyone always has this assumption that when you work with computers, you're a math whiz and you can always do whatever you want. The fact of the matter is a lot of people who work with computers work with logic, which that's me. I'm a logic guy more than a math guy. But then you have John Carmack, who's like a master of both. And for those unfamiliar, uh, John Carmack is the programmer for id Software back in the old days, like when it was found. He's one of the co-founders as well. Uh, he has since left id Software, but he is the reason that we have the vast majority of FPSs we have today. Because not only did he create uh, Wolfenstein, Doom, uh, you know, Commander Keen, but Wolfenstein and Doom, the big ones here. But oh, and Quake, of course. But he made sure that those engines, which are some of the most elaborate and optimized engines ever created in the history of programming, he made sure those engines were freely available for people to take and modify as they wish. Now, granted, they still licensed out the engine and everything like that, but the fact of the matter is he created the greatest possible bedrock we could have asked for for uh, starting off this this 3D industry that we live in now. Uh, without him, I have no doubt in my mind that we would not be nearly as far in game development as we are now and we I, I think myself and every other developer truly does owe him a debt of dad, uh, a debt of gratitude rather yeah i think um it's a shame you went off to do you mean you got completely enamored with vr which is yeah. fine i have two vr sets myself a quest and a psvr i have a great time with them i thankfully um have a stomach of a concrete elephant, so the whole <laughs> nausea thing doesn't kick in typically. I have yet to actually encounter it when I'm playing. Um, uh, I, I do find like complete immersion with them. That's one thing. It's kind of being dis disorientating when you take the headset off. But other than that, that's all I get. And uh, But no, you're right. We have a lot to thank for Mr. Carmack and his extraordinary brain. Mm -hmm. um, mathematics uh, for, you know, isn't really about numbers. It's actually about patterns. Mm. Um, but that's the more, even more esoteric stuff. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but you're right. Um, the thing about computers is, is I've, again, take a drink, everyone. But I haven't said this in a while. But at the moment, at the moment, computers are a series of switches. Ultimately. Until quantum computing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I said at the moment. Kevin. <laughs> I had to be very careful there because when it comes to quantum, then it, that, that what I've just said. Yeah, you true. don't want to date this podcast saying, oh, no, it can never be anything but a series of switches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So at the moment, there are a series of switches. And uh, thanks for the evergreen comment there. But uh, so in other words, you know, you switch, turn a switch on somewhere. And then when that switch is in a certain condition, you use Boolean logic, right, to say, oh, well, if that one's on, that one over there has to be off. You sure? Definitely. Okay. <laughs> That's it. And it just be it. layers upon layers upon layers upon millions, millions of these, millions, uh, uh, create the computers that we have to the, today. Um, and that's basically, you know, that's why uh, programmers are fan typically are fantastic at uh, lateral thinking and, uh, you know, understanding cause and effect, because that's their job. Mm, kind of have to. <laughs> It's, such, it's kind of maddening though sometimes but yeah it's the job it's like well yeah because you did that this has happened because we knew that was going mm -hmm. we, we basically are just um uh risk assessment analysis for computers constantly <laughs> and there's no gradient though that's the thing most people think there's a is it high medium no it's on or off what's wrong with you <laughs> 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 but the world is I know but oh, never mind so <laughs> that's, that's an excellent response and uh, yeah we do have a lot to thank for him I, I still remember playing Quake for the first time and losing my mind over the ability to look up mm, mind yeah. blowing it truly was yeah and then 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 figuring out circle strafing <laughs> very <quickly laughs> I mean they didn't even anticipate that that was something when uh, somebody figured that out and then yeah. it just kind of lost itself in the internet who it was but yeah and was d that arrived right mm -hmm. oh yeah put your left hand there and you oh oh yeah 
And then, then, then it's finally point. Yeah, is the gun over something you can shoot at? Yes. Now shoot. Is it over something you can't shoot at? No, then don't shoot. Okay. <laughs> Boolean logic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know what's funny, actually? Uh, Quake 3 Arena was uh, one of the first major shooters I ever did because um, I never really used mouse uh, mice for first-person shooters for the longest time. And I was using – I think it was uh, the standard up, down, left, right keys to move around. And I would use um, – a and D to look up and down. So even in Quake 3 Arena, half the time, I was still playing it like it was Doom. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, mean, I have to say, the last, the last Doom game, until the Eternal comes out in a couple of weeks, on the same day as Animal Crossing? What? what was <laughs> oh my... That ex- <laughs> I was wondering why people were doing crossovers on Reddit of the two. That's so perfect. <laughs> that's, that's why. That's yeah, so finally, we can get a revenge on Nook. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, I played it with mouse and keyboard the last Doom because I was actually read an, an article and said, "Yeah, that's kind of." It wasn't the you know elitist. They were saying, "Yeah, that's really it's an extraordinary experience when you have that precise control." Mm-hmm. But eh, I think things things are changing with the controllers now. Anyway, so I mean, I, I can never go away from mouse and keyboard anymore. First first years, I tried the controller thing, and nothing against anyone who can do it, but for yeah. my money, I just cannot do controller first person shooters. It's it's too awkward feeling to me. You can spin round on a dime mm-hmm. with a mouse, and that's important for and then, you know, then high stop, dead stop, and then that dead stop, you've got your crosshair on something you can shoot at. You can't really do it with a controller. No, they get they have to add in like auto aim and stuff yeah, like that yeah, to make yeah. it feel to make it feel right, you know. Yeah. Now, having said that, one thing I will say, um, uh, the six axis controller for the PlayStation apparently that does some games now are doing a thing where it detects your minute movements up, down, left, and right of the controller itself to be a kind of more coarse, um, oh sorry, a more fine uh, movement scheme, which is intriguing. But I I would have to play with that to know if it would be right for me. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you there. But it would allow you to have a faster spin around. Anyway, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, last question of the first half. See, you've survived. See, well, yeah, we've kind of gone up and down on the difficulty here. Like that one, I I was ready for that one. Yeah, you were. Yeah, it's the influence one for you. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, the last one is something, you know, it's a video game podcast, so it's kind of a traditional question. Um, What are you playing right now? (laughs) oh boy well i I have to be honest not as much as i'd like to um but i there's one game that i just keep coming back to and i hope that to continue to be the case but destiny 2 has had my attention now for about three years it has become my wow as somebody who never really got into wow it it has been a trip but I, I gotta say, as much as I love it and as much as I love Bungie, I'm feeling content starved these days on it. I feel like anyone who's listening who's been playing lately, they know what I'm talking about. Right. That's a yeah. shame. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, hopefully this next season kicks it up a little bit, but their, their approach to seasons has been feeling just a little flat, and I don't blame them for it. You know, they're only so big and they can only do so much with what they have, but, uh, I, I've been a little disappointed, especially uh, it's sounding like there's not going to be a new raid this next coming season, which is the biggest disappointment to me because they didn't do one this past season either, and the raids are easily the most fun I have in the game. So, Well, they did, did become independent again, didn't they? They uh, detached themselves, and the resources they, they once had are no longer there. Yeah, and I, I hear mixed things in regards to that because you know, a lot of the money they got went to um, – uh, Activision, and you know, obviously, I I'm just hearing rumors. I don't know what the real story is, but my understanding is they're making pretty decent money right now. Uh, but you know, like you said, they don't necessarily have the resources anymore. They uh, they might have lost some developers in the transfer. For all I know, I mean, who really knows? I always found the whole Bungie story quite fascinating. It's mm. a discussion for another time, but uh, they've uh, they've had a storied history of being connected to very large companies and disconnecting and then doing it again and disconnecting again. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. okay, I didn't know you could do that, but apparently if you've got enough nouse and enough clout, I should say, <laughs> then you can do that. But I want to uh, say it's uh, three times now, uh, now, isn't it? It'd be Apple, Microsoft, and uh, Activision. Activision. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a thing yeah. they do. It truly oh, is. Maybe they will stop doing that. Um <laughs> 
but no, uh, good shout on that. Um, I do like some Destiny. I haven't played it too long. I love the first one. I know it's not everyone, but I did like the campaign to the second one. Um, mm-hmm. The strange sort of paladin creatures. Um, they were oh, they, they were fun to fight against. Um, oh yeah. But also, um, you know, really one of, some of the most uh, intelligent AI creatures that you encountered. I found. It is truly shocking how much they were able to do in an online environment with those AIs. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, those those who know AI know that AI alone is hard, but when you factor in multiplayer, oh my goodness, AI is practically impossible. So they deserve a lot of credit for what they've done with that game. And I I do feel bad that I, I know that the developers, rather the the people who play the game, who are developers in some way, they recognize that. But that is such a small minority of other gamers who are just angry that, you know, oh, why are they nerfing these guns that I like? Or, you know, why uh, the, the new thing they're going to be doing supposedly starting next season is uh, they're actually going to start making guns expire. Uh, the legendary guns expire. And I'm actually in favor of that because, uh, you know, I, I hate it, but I'm in favor of it, <laughs> if only because it means I'm going to vary up my toolkit a little bit. Yes, because... You know, like uh, Borderlands, for example, um, you get that gun, the gun that they oh, this made this made for me, and then you spend the rest of the game with that one freaking gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because and you, uh, you know. they, sorry, and they do the same thing: is they they expire guns through the means of you leveling up, and that gun not being powerful enough anymore yeah. until you hit max level, and then you know whatever you want. <laughs> it's this this shiny purple thing so i'm equating purple with awesomeness mm. oh it's orange sorry orange is legendary isn't it ah uh, yes yes that's, that's the key purple's mm-hmm. um epic and, yeah. and green special and blues <laughs> and, <laughs> blues there yeah, but blues there yeah but uh that's all quite, i think that came from wow or it might have been everquest i can't remember uh, it might have did, been everquest maybe yeah, yeah. It might have been uh i did actually play both those yeah, EverQuest is a game. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, I kind of played EverQuest. I'm uh, I'm gonna totally out myself as a uh, failure of EverQuest here, but um, I didn't ever own EverQuest. I owned EverQuest Online Adventures for the PS2. Oh, right. <laughs> that was close enough. It was close yeah. enough. It it was it was a weird weird thing, yeah. but I did actually play. It was weird. I remember mm-hmm. taking up an entire memory card. That was. Weird. Oh yeah, you. I think you had to have two memory cards for it, if I recall. Just one for the pure extra data, and yeah. Yeah, nuts. It was, it was interesting. Uh, it was, yeah, but uh, corpse running was not a thing that no one wants to bring back. You know, because oh, you're dead. Where's all your stuff? It's with your corpse. <laughs> what? Well, it, it depends on the game, right? Definitely not in MMOs. No one wants to do that again. But uh, you look at things like Dark Souls, and uh, I think they found a good balance on that. They did. They did. Yeah. And I have a lot of time for those. Uh, I actually um, just uh, we were going to finish on the first half now, but of I course my, <laughs> I got my Grail game. You know, we've got that game that you've been hunting for. I got uh, Kingsfield for the for the PS One. Oh my goodness gracious! <laughs> I'm so happy for you. I'm I am happy you know what Kingsfield is. I. <laughs> I, I'm very happy to hear that because I am waiting for From Software to make a Kingsfield reboot. They do need to make one because so I'm going to stream it. I think because it's a it's it's weird, but it's From right? Yeah, and it, it's From, it's, it, but it's good apparently. But yeah, it's very very hard to find. I got it at a reasonable price, not cheap 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 price, but it was a reasonable price. It was a price I was willing to pay. You're going to be mad when you hear it. Well, now, are you talking about Kingsfield 1, Japan Kingsfield 1, or Kingsfield 1, which is Kingsfield 2? It's Kingsfield 2 because it's the PAL gotcha. version. Then you're going to be really mad at me because uh, I actually got Kingsfield on a whim in a software etc., which uh, basically before EB Games existed, they just yeah. had it used in like the big box even. Yeah, I, mean... I want to say we got it for like 7 bucks. <laughs> I, I don't want to make you mad, but I feel no, like you need to know is, that. <laughs> the problem is, back in the day when I was collecting a lot of stuff, I don't do it anymore because I got all the stuff. Um, 15, 15 years ago, people were just chucking stuff away, right? They just didn't mm. know what they were. Now, you cut, any stuff like that, you, you now pay a premium for, and there's nothing you can do. I've tried. I tried doing the bargain bin and stuff, and like, oh, they don't know what's in there. And I did it once. I plucked it out, and I pulled it out, and it's like, Oh, 90 pounds. They obviously know how much this is worth. <laughs> I tell you what, you know what I've had really good luck with? Um, 
was it thrift stores? Yeah. Thrift stores do not care what the actual like you know price yeah. of a game is. They will just sell it for like a buck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So over here would be charity shops, the same thing. But yeah, yeah. Cool. Right. Well, that's the first half over. We've delved into From Software and uh, and other stuff. I think we covered the gamut. We did do. We did mention Dark Souls. So there you go. Doesn't often happen on the show. So well done, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, actually shocking. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic. You'd think it'd be like a thing, but it's not. The thing right? on this show is World of Warcraft, which we have mentioned. So there you go. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm uh, par for the course and a little above. Sounds yeah, good. A little above. Yeah, good stuff. Let's move on to the second half where we delve deep into Cloak and Dasher. Before we go into Cloak and Dasher, we need to know what it is. So please, Kevin, if you just enlighten us, what is Cloak and Dasher? I like to think of Cloak and Dasher as my love letter to 2D platformers. Um, I have always, I would say one of the biggest inspirations for me has been Super Meat Boy. So if you like things along the vein of Super Meat Boy, VVVVV, um, get a little bit of n plus in there if you're familiar with that this is that kind of game it's it's but it's meant to be toned down a little bit because i feel like those games tend to just scare everybody off so this is my attempt to bring this a little bit more into the public eye by being a little kinder it's it's not too kind mind you i'm still very mean but i mean but fair the way i like to approach it yeah I mean, it rewards skill and patience. But, yeah, I think it's a pretty good summary of knowing what you're getting into. But the Super Meat Boy reference is good because the instant restart helps. Very much so. And uh, that was something I I felt was necessary going in. Because, as you say, if you die, you just press a button, you're right back in the action. I don't. I don't want the player to think too much. I don't want them to dwell too much on any kind of mistakes they made because the idea is you get better through iteration. Yeah. And if if I have you sitting at a you know if you die frequently and I just have you sitting for like two three five seconds like thinking about that death, I feel like you're just gonna get angry and leave. And I, I've seen that happen sometimes with this game, but I think a lot of people tend to instead get that feeling of I can do better. 
And that's what I really want them to have. Now, I did play this at PAX for the first time. Uh, and um, you were standing near me, I think. And But you did move away because you were talking to one of your colleagues on the, the booth, which is great. But um, I was in the between appointments at PAX. And I was like, oh, I'll play this for about five, ten minutes. And then I'll be able to then move on and get to my destination. And uh, which is what you do at PAX. It's just the way it is when you're, you're sort of going from booth to booth. And it's fine. It's great. And uh, I didn't at all get frustrated. I just found it fascinating. What I found fascinating was the the movement and the precise uh, movement of the character, which you don't often see these days in platform games, oddly enough. Um, there's, there was a big trend for many years of having things a little bit, I don't know, more I don't know, forgiving or maybe just a little bit more sort of sloppy and it's kind of bothered me the platformers that have gone this way I blame um, Little Big Planet for when going that way I didn't like the mm-hmm. platforming action in that particular game I found it uh, it ushered in the era of all platforms have the covered in grease for some mm, reason absolutely and, and this is, you know what do you think Kev? I couldn't agree more with the little big planet uh, statement there. I I loved it for what it allowed people to do, mm. but I hated the fact that it was a physics based platformer and that it got so po- it's it's not its fault it got popular. I'm actually kind of happy that it did, but because it ushered in people being able to easily create things, but its popularity definitely did spring up a lot of very loose feeling platformers and I think that when you take away that level of precision, I, I don't want to say you take away any level of skill, but I will say I think you're kind of you're, – you're ushering in bad game feel, and that's that's to me the real crime, bad game feel. And there's been a turnaround, and I believe Cook and Dasher is part of that turnaround. Go, no, you're going to land on that platform precisely, and you're going to stop. <laughs> you're going to freaking stop. You're mm-hmm. going to move. You're not going to rotate. You're going to slide. You're going to stop. Unless the actual platform requires you to slide, but typically, if it is, we'll, we'll warn you if that happens. <laughs> yep, no, no surprises. I try to make it all out in the open, and that's oh, yeah. that's actually a big philosophy of this game because every level is literally just the size of the game screen. Yes. So you should be able to see everything if you look around. You shouldn't be surprised by something being slightly off screen, or you shouldn't have to worry about any leaps of faith. It should all be quite plain and apparent to you. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, all. It feels like an old Amiga game. A lot of Amiga games for platform era looked like this back in the day. And that's not a bad thing. They they played a lot worse, though, because they didn't have the design sensibilities and advancements that we have now, which we can enjoy. So, so I love this sort of mix of older technology, kind of, although, you know, the speed and the animations and the wouldn't exist back then. Um, but the then you have the what, we, what we're talking about now, and as the first design question I have is, I want to talk about the little blue gems. Um, they are in quite precise locations, pretty <laughs> clever locations. Mm-hmm. And uh, it does much to encourage the player to go into areas that normally they wouldn't really risk themselves going into for fear of dying. Mm-hmm. Did they always exist? Actually, yes. They were a design concept pretty much from the word go. Um, I This game did start off as a completely different prototype, but when I changed it over, I realized very quickly that I wanted to make this a game that casual players can enjoy and kind of latch on to, learn from, get better at. And the gems serve as a way for seemingly easy levels to have a difficult side if the player chooses to pursue them. Uh, so largely what I do is I put the gems in places that provide just some kind of challenge. It's not always necessarily a hard challenge, but they're there to kind of coax players into saying like, hey, I can go into that place and survive. How do I do that? And then, you know, they'll give it a shot and inevitably they'll probably mess up a few times. But the idea being that I can use them both as a guidance tool to just guide them along standard levels if I wish to, or if I'm feeling like I uh, want to encourage them to get a little, try to try something a little harder, I'll put them in an out of the way place and offer it up as a side challenge if they wish. I treated them as training 
because I felt that if I can get that gem from there, I can do the more challenging standard platform elements later mm-hmm. on. I'm not sure if that's true, but that's how I treated it. <laughs> not, I wasn't sort of blaming my OCD on it. Not that I have that. Um, but I was, I was, this wasn't me my, doing my collectathon thing. I'm not a big collector, actually. I'm more of an explorer. Um, but um, I knew the value of getting to those gems because it was a means to an end. Yes, you get extra time and stuff. But also, um, just the, the challenge and overcoming that challenge is something to be applauded and encouraged. <clears throat> now, I did mention time. Uh, and Cloak and Dasher does have a timer. Why? <laughs> uh, that is a great question that I am actually muddling over uh, as of the, as of yesterday. <laughs> so the the idea when I originally made this uh, game as it is, um, well before this is about a, almost a year ago now. This is probably back in July. I was scheduled to actually show this game off at a uh, convention. It'd be the first time I'd ever shown off any kind of game. And I was faced with this problem of, okay, this this game is clearly going to challenge a lot of people, and there's a great chance that they might not be able to finish it in a timely manner, but I only have a limited number of machines, and I want to make sure that people get a chance to, you know, get in and play it, and that one person's not going to hog a machine for over a half hour with with no way of me saying, you know, like, like I, I'm, a, I'm bad at, like, telling people, you know, hey, it's time to stop or anything like that. So I thought, well... I could have the game do it for me. <laughs> so I basically tried, you know, I, I had my set of levels all set up for the for the convention. This was Kineticon. Um, and I realized, okay, well, you know, why don't I just set it up so you only have 10 minutes to play? And that just, well, actually, I started off with setting up to do five minutes to play. Uh, same basic demo you did, except some slight alterations on the levels. Uh, originally, it was just going to be five minutes. Uh, so I had some friends come over and try it. And sure enough, uh, they showed me very quickly that five minutes was not going to be nearly enough for the average player. So I bumped it up to 10. And um, from there, there was the gems that were just kind of there. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so why would people in the demo want to go for these things? You know, I mean, granted, they look shiny, but they don't actually do anything for you mechanically. And I realized, well, why don't I add a five second, a little extra thing to it? Five seconds extra if you pick them up. So that's really just where the uh, timer originally came from was the idea of it's got to be a time demo. Otherwise, some people are just going to be on the machines forever. And to be quite frank, looking back now, uh, as I said about like, a day ago, I, th- I think it was literally just yesterday. Um, one of I, I had somebody stream the game uh, as someone from Extra Credits, actually, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and he um, he did not like the timer. <laughs> like I carried it over into the final release because it was kind of what I knew, and it kind of felt unique, and it felt right. And the more I watched him, and he's not as good at these games as, you know, I am or, you know, some other pl- uh, platform gamers are going to be, which is mostly who I've been watching. I've been watching speedrunners try the game and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, the timer's fine. It's not actually causing any problems. But the more I watched, the more I realized, wow, this just feels terrible. Like you it, – it, and th- this is – I really have to thank Will for the, for actually opening my eyes to this because I was totally blind to it. But, you know, when you're playing – uh, the game with the timer, you are just inherently always going to be rushing and not necessarily learning. Like if you're good at platformers already, you're going to probably be okay. But if it's not necessarily your genre, and remember, I want to appeal to uh, people who are not as great at platformers. If it's not your genre, it's going to feel bad when you lose and then have to replay all those levels again. Yeah. 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 So I've actually been, as of yesterday, re-examining time attack mode. I, uh, you know, little bit of a heads up here. It will probably be getting removed, actually, uh, and not removed permanently, but temporarily no. until I can uh, find a better place for it. I have some ideas for that, but I don't want to go into that at the moment. But it will be replaced with a standard in-game timer that counts up instead. So players can, you know, play at their leisure, learn at their leisure and get better at their leisure. Because I, I agree. I think uh, in retrospect and, you know, that's that's how this stuff works. That's why it's in early access is so I can hear feedback. But in retrospect, the timer was a mistake. And I'm glad someone pointed that out to me. I think um, 
there's different ways you could do it. Uh, there's you could make it as a separate mode, and say, look, I say the time challenge mode. You you can maybe open it up after someone's completed the game and go, oh, you think you could? See if you could do it in two minutes or something <laughs> like that. And yeah. you could have paths like they have on Doom. You know, you think you've done a level in four minutes. Actually, it took 30 seconds. <laughs> no, and I agree. There is there is a future for time attack in this game. Um, I think what I'm going to gear towards most likely, and this was something I had planned in the far future, um, was I want to introduce a uh, a daily challenge mode which would be basically a random set of levels that are picked by the game every day that everyone can go against uh, in a one-shot deal. And, uh, you know, you try to get through the levels in in one go, and then whatever you get will be your leaderboard score for the day. It's not a new concept. A lot of games do this kind of thing. But I think that would be a good time attack challenge, quite frankly, because it's uh, – it kind of enforces that you get one chance idea. And if you fail, you're not going to feel bad about going back and doing it because guess what? You don't get to go back and do it. No, that's right. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. So that, that, that's probably what the future of time attack will look like, but it will no longer, as of the next major patch I'll be putting out this month, it will not be the main game mode anymore because it, it just doesn't feel fun when you lose. And I, I I've, I should have recognized that. I, feel bad that i didn't but i'm very glad someone brought in my attention and i'm i this game is built on its early feed or its early access feedback so i want to thank everybody who's been helping me with that shout out to tgh uh, amber all of you guys you know who you are cool excellent next question and these next two questions are, i've realized looking at them they're quite linked which is natural when i develop these questions but they are they are different there's a i believe in cloak and dasher there's a as a requirement, maybe, or a demand, or an assumption, that the players keep moving. Got to keep moving. Uh, it's all thanks, really, to the very simple and straightforward controls that Cloak and Dasher has. Um, how has this influenced the design of the levels? Uh, so that was actually one of the ideas for some of the levels, for sure, is... I do like the idea of the player continuing to move, and the the reason that I like that idea is because after a while, it kind of instills a sense of flow in the player, a sense of not needing to think and just acting or reacting as things are coming at them. Uh, not everyone achieves that feeling of flow, but I tend to find that it does hit a lot of people who wouldn't have seen it coming, and I think if you – if you do, if you give people a minute to pause and think in a game like this, then you're probably going to they're going to lose that sense of flow, and then it's going to kind of hit them like you know, wait a minute, like what what's uh what what's the point in uh, going fast? I, I think having the timer, not not even the down timer, but just any kind of timer, really helps instill that too. But I'm sorry, can you can you repeat the question? <laughs> Has the the need for the encouragement, if you will, of the player to keep moving, what is that? how has that influenced the, the design of the levels and their complexity? Gotcha. Uh, so it, more in the later levels, it's been influencing it. I don't know if you've reached some of the later levels, but you'll notice that uh, as you go, the levels start having less and less land and yeah. a lot of like one-chance platforms, where in which a big design of this game is the ability to bounce off of enemies and get your double jump and dash back. And I personally love it when you succeed in a chain like that. So a lot of later levels, not all of them, but a fair amount of later levels will offer less areas of safety to, to land on. Uh, it'll offer traps that might uh, get you if you're not moving. So, yeah, I'd say, I'd say that's how it's kind of influenced it, is uh, finding ways to make the player, like, not feel comfortable standing still and it, it can be more challenging in some places than other places but uh one one standard go-to i tend to find is that those enemies dying and not being there for you to bounce on again tends to help a lot if there's like danger below mm -hmm. uh but i am also looking looking back at the last set of levels that i made and realizing you know that's great and all but then there are some players who will just not be able to do those chains properly. Maybe it'd be better to save those for even harder, uh, you know, down the line levels. So uh, the, the influence of these levels is always kind of shifting depending on if I think something was more difficult than it was meant to be. Because I've definitely been making way harder levels because there's something I can do easily. But of course, I have like 
so many hours in this game now, both developing and testing and everything. It's it's so easy for me to gauge these days uh, what's actually hard. Yeah, because <laughs> you're too close to the coalface, you're too familiar with the, with the um, particular genre, um, and uh, that does, you know, prove a, an issue. Yeah, the uh, real challenge is finding fresh eyes even, because, you know, as soon as you introduce these levels to somebody who's played the game before or who's never played the game, suddenly there's someone who's played the game and they're going to know the mechanics. So it's it's tough finding fresh eyes as you go, but it's always I, I cannot stress enough to any developers out there. If you can test early with others, test often with others, find out what they like, find out what they don't and move on from there and accept yeah. the fact that you're probably better than you realize you are at your own game. Yeah, yeah, true indeed. Although there's going to be people better than you, and that's fine too. Um, last question then. I know, well, good things. We do have to come to an end. I hope you think it's been good. Um, knowing where Cloak will be and not where they are is, I believe, key to playing Cloak and Dasher. Because you already know where, he, where, where they are. Where are they going to be? Depending on what your actions are, what your next inter- interaction will be with them. What do you expect the player to do to become familiar with the capabilities of Cloak? I would say, and that is a tough question, I will say, uh, the main thing I would like players to do to become more familiar with Cloak's capabilities is to look at an element existing in the level and realize that I probably put it there for a reason. Just as a slight example, there's one level where, uh, by design, Cloak has to kind of go around it twice. So what I did was I set a little area where there's a bunch of breaky bricks uh, that you step on. And when you step on them, they you know break down. And then the next time around, there's actually a floating enemy right below where those breaking bricks were. And you can actually, the second time around to save time, jump up, dash into that enemy, and bounce up and save probably about half the level's worth of time. Um but most people that I've seen play, they don't really recognize that, and they just kind of put it off as, oh, that enemy is just kind of there for some reason. I don't expect everyone to look at a level and say that was planned for that to be there. I expect there to be you know, a fair amount of people who just are going to say like, oh, why is that there? That doesn't make any sense. And that's fine because those are there for the people who are truly looking to get better at the game. But if you are looking to get better at the game, I encourage you very heavily – to look at everything that's placed because odds are it's there to help you in some way, shape or form or hurt you, but yeah. hurting you can be a, lear- a way to learn. So still yeah. helping. <laughs> I, mean, I found enemies interacting with enemies that you can kill by jumping on. Uh, it's great fun because you can get to places <laughs> like, how did I get up here? Well, <laughs> exactly. You just smashed on. Yeah, but it's gone now. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's gone. <laughs> Where are you going to land now? Oh boy. Oh, oh no. <laughs> this, is, this is all going over my head. Split second. Like, well, he's, it's like this slow motion. It's like Cloak is in an arc now, right? Well, <laughs> where can I see Bino? Oh, there, there, there. Hang on. I can go down there. Can I? Is that a platform? No, it's not. Woo! And it's, it's, like, it's, it's great. So, yeah, I just wanted to talk about that because that's the thing about platform games. It's not where you are. It's where you're going. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one of the things that I learned when I, you know, we had a bit of a virtual green room when we were talking about, I sent uh, Kevin a video of, um, of Jet Set Willy because this game reminds me a little bit, a little bit of Jet Set Willy and some of the mechanics. Uh, Monty on the run and another game as well. And I believe you mentioned that at the show and uh, other sort of platformer games from the 80s. And one of the things I discovered was that if you've got like a, some object, so it's something that's slamming down or rotating, um, and in order to avoid it, you have to jump towards it while it's there. Because by the time you get there, it's gone. And it's a very simple thing, but you just go, oh, well, hang on, the timing for this is, I'm going to be in the air before I reach it, so I want it to, to be uh, in, engaged or in, in my way. As I'm flying in the air, because by the time I get there, it would have gone. Mm-hmm. And that's something I definitely see in Cloak and Dashers. That happens in a couple of times. And like, well, um, okay, if I just jump through here, the the, the arrow is going to be there as I'm flying through the air. But by the time I get down to the area, it won't be there. 
it's a very simple sort of thing I've been doing for decades now. It's just like, well, if the danger thing isn't there, I will move as it's there, not not while it's gone. Because if it's gone, then by the time I arrive, it's now back and it, I've, I've been killed. <laughs> um, but that's just, the, I mean, it doesn't always work because sometimes the timing is just slightly off. And that's fine. You just figure it out. Um, but, uh, yeah, Cloak and Dasher is anchored, I believe, around where you're going and not where you are. Which is... I would I would agree with that. Like you you plan out your route ahead of time to some degree and say like, okay, I can probably get cloak there. I just need to figure out how I'm gonna react after I'm there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A common when I see a key with a bat of the key or keys, uh, my goal is get the key, get the key, get the key. Okay, I got the key. Now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> right. So cloak and dasher by Spirit Stone Studio. Uh, by the way, where do you get the name from? It's a good name. Actually, uh, so I've always loved precious gems and stuff like that. And as it turns out, like almost every precious gem already has a studio. So (laughs) I kind of decided, you know what, I'm going to kind of make my own. I, uh, you know, so I just kind of mold around in my head. If I were to make my own kind of precious stone, I think what kind of stone would it be? And it would be a spirit stone. There you go. Yeah. So I I love asking the question about where studios get their name. It it varies way beyond (laughs) places I would not expect. But yes, as I was saying, Cloak and Dasher by Spiritstone Studio is out now on Windows, PC, Mac, and Linux. And it's uh, early access, available on Steam. And uh, go get it. It's great. Really, really good game. <laughs> thank you. Kevin, thank you very, very much for being on the show. You've been a fantastic guest. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And you're more than welcome to come back on to talk about any new game that you've made in the last two to three years, or what have you. We have had <laughs> lots of repeat guests, because we've been around for a very long time. And uh, so, yeah. But again, thanks very much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, canonrince.com.